like to read? Action and adventure? Mystery? Fantasy? How about science fiction? Welcome to Spark Science. I'm your host, Regina Barbara DeGraff, and I teach physics and astronomy at Western Washington University. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Lisa Rivera. She's an associate professor here at Western of Jaconics and African American Literature. And we talk to her about speculative fiction. You may not have heard of this genre before. If not, stay tuned for an introduction. If you are familiar, prepare for some great recommendations. I want to welcome Dr. Lisa Rivera to our show again. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. I really, really liked the first time you came to our show. The format's a little different now. It's just me. Let's go back to like the first interview that we did. It wasn't always sci-fi, right? Like people use this term called speculative fiction and people still use that term. And, and when um, we, we discussed um, that in, at Western Octavia's Brood was one of the books that, you know, the Western reads books, that term is actually still used. So like for our listeners, I know you did this in the other show, but can you like explain what is this difference between this term speculative fiction and science fiction? And, you know, as an, as an English professor, you can help me. <laughs> right. as a scholar of this work. Yeah. Um, well, I guess for me, um, like I think of speculative fiction as a more like a, 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 a encompassing a wider range of texts and genres that can include fantasy and like even supernatural horror and science fiction. So speculative fiction is just fiction that falls out of the parameter of realism and somehow uh, taps into the, the not yet, the what if, and the imaginative. Um, and then within that, there's science fiction, which is also what if and imaginative, but extrapolates from like known science in some way, and also probably makes a technological statement of some kind. So, um, you know, fantasy isn't really extrapolating from real science there's no scientists working on middle earth you know trying to find middle like i'm thinking of you know yeah they don't even have like telescopes i noticed that like <laughs> i when i when i was a, when i was a there student, we go and and even even now i was like um if it doesn't have a wizard or a robot in it then i'm not interested you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah you were a nerd right yeah 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 not yeah, were yeah. i am a oh, nerd. right but you're right like you're not extrapolating from sort of technology you know yeah they're, they're catapults <laughs> there's okay well yeah right um i mean you know i mean again i i live in the world of academia and your listeners i would imagine some do and some don't but in academia you know when you publish or when i publish anything in my fields i have to be very careful that i honor the different or acknowledge the different approaches to like key terms. And so for me, you know, I often use just SF and then I have a footnote because I'm an academic and we use footnotes. <laughs> and I just say that I, I use the term SF and then I qualify it by saying, because some of the texts I look at are more speculative because they don't make any kind of statement about technology. They're not extrapolating from technology. And then some of the texts I'm looking at are not really interested in technological extrapolation or scientific extrapolation, but they're nonetheless inhabiting imaginary space spaces. So, yeah. but yeah, these are important terms and they get, I think the, the danger in academic writing is you have to use them carefully. But I think it's important you you teach this class that talks about speculative fiction from 
before 1900, right? Like, and, yeah. and, and it's always full and it, it's featuring um, black and Chicana right. Latinx um, authors. And, and I'm just wondering how has that progressed since the last time we've talked to you? Like it's been six years. Have you talked wow. it online? Like, are yeah. there way more reading? Is it less popular? Like what's going on? Yeah, well, it is, it's always really popular. Um, and it's because of the content. So for the listeners, I teach um, both African-American science fiction or speculative fiction, and I teach G-Connex, so, um, and that refers to uh, Mexican-Americans. So I teach, in, t- in terms of African-American science fiction, I do teach a class that starts in the 19th century. And of course, the phrase science fiction didn't exist back then. And so when I teach the earlier texts, they, you know, we just use the term speculative fiction or uh, dystopian or utopian fiction. And nothing has changed in my African-American science fiction class other than I'm bringing in newer writers that I'm discovering alongside my students. So um, I'm re- I recently started I started teaching the anthology of science fiction by Walida E. Marisha called Octavia's Brood, which is science fiction, science fiction stories and social justice movements. And those, they include black writers, you know, queer writers. They include LeVar Burton. They include LeVar Burton, exactly. Um, So I'm branching out in my um, black science fiction class. And I, you know, finally started teaching Jemison and... Um, other published works by writers like uh, Daryl Smith, Evie Shockley, Nisi Shaw, who are contemporary writers who don't just write science fiction, they also write fantasy. Um, Daryl Smith actually even writes about religion. So, you know, just including new writers, but the class continues to be popular. And also, since we last spoke, Black Panther came out. So it's just right, right. way more on the radar. And, and I also, since we last spoke, like there have been more books published on Afrofuturism. So with the term in its title, in the title. So it's just, there's a lot more to pull from in terms of um, like different texts I can bring in, but also students are just more aware of of the of the genre and so they come in and are like are we going to talk about Wakanda you know they've already know, they already they've already seen it they already know about it you know and it's cool because they just they're just more aware of it what surprises them which is the case you know was the case six years ago is that I'm like look guys black people have been writing about like you know utopian spaces for a long time this is not new Wakanda existed in 1899 with the publication of Sutton Griggs, Imperium and Imperia. So we can talk about Wakanda now, but we can also talk about Wakanda back in the 19th century. And they're like, whoa, no way. <laughs> I mean, that, that blows my mind right now that you can, you know, you can take this idea of Wakanda, this utopian place that, you know, is self-sufficient and doesn't need assistance from, you know, Western um, civilizations. And then you can go back to one of your first readings in that class. And yeah. I almost, I mean, I'm sure you can do that along that spectrum too, you probably can go to another, you know, um, reading, you know, 10 years after that or 20 years after that. Yeah, Um, totally. Yeah. I mean, Pauline Hopkins's book of one blood was published in 1902 or 1904. And she like has an imaginary African city that's completely independent, kind of cut off from the rest of the world, just like Wakanda, um, technologically and scientifically advanced. Like mm-hmm. it's Wakanda. And when we, when we read it, my students are just, they, they're, they're kind of blown away. They're like, this is, 
like over a hundred years ago. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> and then you're right. And you can go out further, like George Schuyler's Black Empire has, this is like jumps to the 1930s and he imagines, it's it's a little more of a, an ominous take, but he imagines like, you know, what a world where there is literally a Black empire and this empire is super powerful um, and self-sufficient and super technologically advanced. I mean, he imagines like, green technologies and this is like from the 1930s so yeah it just it's called it's a Murray Baraka who's a black writer calls it the he was he's talking about like black arts in general he calls it the changing same which is if you look at the history of black literary arts there are a set of motifs and kind of narrative spaces that repeat over and over again but they look they might look different differently every time they emerge but they're they're the same the same motif in some way and it's all tied to like that long history of like black protest but also black joy like the insistent to like the insistence on imagining alternatives to the to the here and now and often those take a speculative bent because that place doesn't exist yet so right. they have to use speculative fiction right I, I i just wonder as you're saying this you know um did did the creators who were white men of Black Panther, you know, like, yeah. were they aware of this writing? I don't know. I would imagine not. Right. Me too. I would imagine yeah. not too, but we don't know. Right. Well, they're okay. Well, now I might just have to write an article. Yeah. Thanks, Regina. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Spark Science, and we're talking with Dr. Lisa Rivera about the term Afrofuturism. But last time we really talked about like superheroes and what what at the time, like the title of the show from the first season, which was six years ago, was like Afrofuturism. And you were telling me via email that yeah. that is not the term that people are using right now for the kind of like, you know, speculative fiction that focuses on African-Americans and Black Americans. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we I mean, do you want to know why? Yeah. Tell us more about it. That was my <laughs> question. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> it's really not the term in itself that is is the problem. It's that the term was coined by a white scholar and a wonderful writer whose essay, Black to the Future, is seen in like academic circles as like the first, well, it's the first place, it is literally the first time Afrofuturism is coined, is, is like in print. And so that's the main reason is just that Black activists and scholars and writers in, in like science fiction and fantasy really don't like that term being used because it doesn't, it privileges and centers a white voice, even though in that essay, you know, he's the interviewer and then there are just three interviewees and they're all Black. Um, so there's that. And I think it also obscures the work that was done before that by Black writers who were looking at the same idea of like Black sci-fi. So it's really just that. It became such a popular idea. Afrofuturism just exploded like after 2003. And that essay was like 1994. So, and then Afrofuturism really started to take root in like academia, but then also pop culture. Um, and now it's just huge. If you could give us some examples of like what that term meant and what it's being called now, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of like that's Black a, Panther, I'm thinking yeah. of Star Trek Discovery that's out right yeah. now and just amazing and has Black leads and telling stories from the Black perspective. 
Yeah. So I think that now, I mean, I think you still see it. Like when I teach black sci-fi and I actually recently taught it and I called it reading Afrofuturism before I really began to realize the problem with that. But, but, you know, my students put together a list of articles that they found online. And so you still see it in like reviews of Black Panther or discussions of like N.K. Jameson's work. It's, it's a, a term that we just, I think people are pushing back against because young Black writers like Walida E. Marisha and Adrian Brown of Octavius Brood, the editors of Octavius Brood, um, visionary science fiction, that those were, you know, it was Walida E. Marisha at a talk where I began, where she basically called out that term. And there was recently someone, um, Sherry Renee Thomas, who edited two volumes. The title is Dark Matter, Science F Fiction from the African Diaspora. Um, so a more global way of thinking about Black sci-fi. Um, she recently penned something and she posted it on Facebook about, you know, basically saying we need to stop using the term Afrofuturism because it does not, it centers a white critic, which is just not what we want to be doing when we're trying to elevate Black voices. So yeah, let's let's get back to your, yeah. then your research. So at Western, all the, all the professors, they're doing research. What are, like, you're teaching this class um, how does that relate to what you do um, in your research? So my current stuff? Yeah. yeah. So or past. Tell yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. So my research is, you know, I was hired to teach Chicanx literature. And just FYI, I say Chicanx because it seems like that's the way to go. But I also, you know, don't mind using Chicana, Chicano. It just takes longer to say. I have a class called Novel Ecologies where I look at speculative fiction by women of color, and I teach novels that are dealing with the climate crisis of some kind, specifically within that narratives of environmental justice. So that's my first new thing. Um, and they're all written by women of color, which was sort of an accident on my part. I didn't expect them to all be women, but they ended up all being women. Um, and these texts are really cool because they're taking the questions around environmental justice, and then they're using speculative fiction to just explore that issue. My other big project right now is looking at Chicanic cyberpunk, um, which is a subgenre in science fiction. And that's something that's really near and dear to my heart. I, I've been working on it for quite a while now, and it's, it's all drafted, and I'm super excited about it. But it's, it's becoming that thing where I know that in a few years, it's going to get super popular. You have like, a, your finger on the pulse. Like, you know yeah, so I'm excited. Like so tell us a little bit more about that. Like, can you tell us a story that we might know or, or tell us a new story we might not know that can give us a good picture of Chicanic um, cyber? Um, I mean, I think that it's not as popular as black sci-fi, but the not, there's a film called Sleep Dealer by Alex Rivera, who's not related to me. And <laughs> yeah, we're not related. We're friends on Facebook, but that's the extent of it. Um, and it's basically set in Mexico and it imagines the border as this futuristic space where these factory workers, the maquiadora workers are like, they become like they're cyborgs and they, they hook up to this machine in the factory and they produce all this labor for um, Americans living north of the border. And so it's this, it's, it's, it's like an action film, cyberpunk, and I think it might be something that some of your listeners have maybe heard of. And if they haven't, now's the time to go watch it. That's and what that, this episode's about. It's about a yeah. lot of suggestions of things yeah. you can go check out. So I would check out that. I would check out 
Ernest Hogan, he goes by Nesto Hogan. Um, he's from East LA, incidentally, and he's written three novels and his novels are all decidedly cyberpunk. And so I'm sure your listener, listeners know what cyberpunk is, but in case there's anybody who doesn't, it's basically a subgenre of science fiction that became sort of mainstream in the 80s. Um, and its main areas of interest um, are twofold. It's basically interested in like globalization, which in the 1980s was sort of this like new thing um, and also cybernetic technology. So like cyberspace is the, the term that got coined in 1984. And so what Chiconic Cyberpunk is doing is just like saying, hey, this is cool, but let's reimagine it from the perspective of Mexican-Americans, which like people are like, what? That seems so weird, but it's yeah. actually a thing. So Ernest Hogan is really cool. Would the matrix be yep, cyberpunk, totally. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So my project is like, what happens if we look at texts like the matrix, but that were created and imagined by Chicanx writers or Chicanos, Chicanos. So would Spy Kids be cyberpunk? Oh my gosh. I don't know. Would Chicanx it? Cyberpunk. Well, I, mean, I haven't. Yeah. There, there, it is kind of in a virtual realm in, in, in some parts, especially in the later. I have well, a child. And because loves, it's, yeah. And because kids. it's Robert Rodriguez, right? Per so correct. yeah. That and would the be main cyberpunk. characters are. Oh my gosh. Know. Yes, absolutely. That You're would be welcome. Cyberpunk. I just helped you with your. Yes, book. thank you. <laughs> So I would recommend that your your listeners check out Ernest Hogan because he's written three novels and they're really fun and he he's doing really cool things with the genre. Um, and then as far as like women Chicanas, there's a novel called Lunar Braceros by um, Beatrice Pita and Rosada Sanchez. And that novel is set in the future and has similar interests. And then of course there's Guillermo Gomez Pena who, uh, when I say, of course, because he's been around for a while and he has a lot of cool cyberpunk. He's a performance artist, so he's not quite a novelist, but all of his performance art, he publishes these things called performance diaries. And in them, he'll have like little one act plays that are, you know, really super cyberpunk like. So, um, yeah, but I mean, I guess Spy Kids is the go to as well. Yeah, now that I'm thinking when, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, like how I just convinced you. Well, no, I mean, that actually came up when I was like reading about my stuff. And I remember there's a chapter on it in one book I read. Um, but I think what qualifies it as cyberpunk writ large is because it's uh, Robert Rodriguez, who's the creator. So, right. but Spy Kids isn't, see, this is where my little niche comes in, because I'm really looking at writers who are looking at globalization and asking the question who benefits from globalization and whose labor is making it possible right so you know i don't think spy kids is doing quite that i'm really glad we're doing this episode because this is real science fiction and people who love science fiction should know about it it's right. and these are you know two chicanas and incidentally they're from san diego and i actually brought them to western they came to western and presented it wow. was cool what year was this this was like two years ago. Oh, wow. Um, it was when we had a conference here. So, <laughs> yeah. This is Spark Science, and we're discussing the history of speculative fiction. I love this idea that we can talk about writers as speculative fiction writers. And if, if you listen to LeVar Burton Reads, he says that he goes, I read short stories of speculative fiction because no, they're not all about the future, even though LeVar Burton was Jordy from Star Trek Next Generation. I hope all my listeners know that. And if you don't, now you do. But because I'm thinking about Octavia Butler, which I'm ashamed 
that I am, oh. I'm 39 years old when I started reading Octavia Butler. So I, I, I just um, read her first two books from the Patternist series. And mm-hmm. this, this, the series is, it, it is in the future is futuristic and stuff, but the first two books are not in the future. They're actually in the past. And, yeah. and yeah. I really, really enjoyed them. I haven't read the futuristic ones, but it's speculative fiction, right? It's not yeah. talking about technology. It's talking about, it's basically like X-Men like her, yeah. uh, you know, before yeah, they are, they're like mutants. They're yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although if memory serves me, aren't they connected to outer space in some way? So it, like, eventually they are. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Give me spoilers, but, um, <laughs> and incidentally, like she, so survivor is part of that series. And I, out of deep respect for her, refused to read it. Cause she's embarrassed by it. Right. I'm not reading that one. Yeah, I read that also on Wikipedia that she was like, I, I disown this book and I'm like, then I won't read it. I know. It's like, okay, good. That saves me another like 300 pages. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so we, I love, I do teach a class on Octavia Butler every year, or I, I try to teach it every year. Um, I think I stopped for a bit because, you know, I was just like, oh, I got to do other things, but students love her. I mean, you know, you can just, you can teach Octavia Butler and like have the class be on a, a range of topics. The thing about Butler is she was an avid researcher, so she would have an idea, and then before she would write her novels or stories, she would research and research and research. So she read, like, I mean, if you think about it, she probably has a PhD in some subject, which is on her own, you know? Like, she read science, she read anthropology, she would read, you know, about different cultures. Um, I mean, to write Kindred, she traveled to Maryland and, like, looked at city old, you know, records to figure out like the, the different records and, you know, who owned what farm when. And yeah. And so, that, show, that shows up in, um, yeah. in a wild seed, right. And yeah. it's, it's such a good book. I would, yeah, I, I would say to my listeners, if you want to start with an Octavia Butler book, start with wild seed because yeah. it's so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it is. And I think it was written an article I want to write is looking at wild seed and kindred because like they were written so close together in time, I think, or published so close together in time that you could, you know, kind of do a cool comparison of like reading Wild Seed as like, well, as you said, it's not science fiction, it's speculative fiction. Um, and actually she also has said, I remember I went and saw her read once and she insisted, she's like, look, Kindred is not science fiction. She's mm-hmm. like, yo, there's no, <laughs> like, there's no science in that. It's just this woman goes back in time. There is a little bit of science in, actually, I'm going to take that back. There's a good amount of science in Wild Seed because yeah. this character, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> there's this character and she can, she can change parts of her body. She looks into herself and she talks about germs. Yeah. And at the time, this is, this is like in 1600 or something like that. She's like, I know that there are these alive things. And I know that because um, she has the ability to like see into her body and know everything that's working. And she's like, I know you can't see it, but I can, I can feel it. And I can like take care of these germs that are making you sick. Right. Right. Um, and, and so like, I really liked the science that actually did come out of wild seed. I, you know, as a scientist, I'm like picking all the p- pieces out and I'm like, oh, that's, that's, that's science, you know, that's genetics. Yeah. That's, that's talking about organisms. So, yeah. And then I think when you get to um, Clay's arc, let <laughs> me know that's, I love that book. Like, oh, and people are like, 
<laughs> I just taught it and I had a student tell me, you know, the next time you teach this, you might want to warn students about how dark it gets. I was like, well, I mean, oh, we're talking geez. Butler. <laughs> like, yeah. So, and, but, and that's probably why I liked Wild Seed so much. I'm not a big dark yeah. you know, um, reader, yeah. but that brings us, that brings me back to our, our conversation, yeah. you know, six years ago. And you talked about why the stories around 1900 were so much about utopia. They were so much about like this good future because things were so bad, Yeah, you know? And then there was a time where people were getting more hopeful and then, then the stories got more dystopian. Yeah, And like, so what is it looking like now? Or can you tell our listeners yeah. about that process? I mean, if you take the Octavia Brood, the Octavia's Brood anthology, you know, the premise behind that is, Anytime we try to imagine a world without war, a world without capitalism, a world without police violence against Black people, you're engaging in a kind of speculative fiction. And so I feel like now it's not so much, it's the same thing. It's like the changing same, right? It's like, well, you know, white supremacy is alive and kicking. Um, let's what can we do? How can the imagination become a tool for resistance? You know, Tasha Womack's book on Afrofuturism is all about that. She's like, I'm a black nerd, but I'm also like politically really engaged. And that's why I'm a black nerd. That, that, and the two don't have to be separate. And sometimes I, I can watch a movie and just, you know, Black Panther, and I can watch it just to get away from my work day. But other times I can watch it because I'm really angry about what just happened in Minneapolis or something like that. So I feel like more and more young Black writers and activists are super invested in this idea of using science fiction and speculative fiction as a tool for resistance and not just as a way to imagine a better place, which is a kind of tool for resistance, but also like a way to speak back to power. So when I think of like the stories in Octavia's Brood, that's, I mean, that's what Imarisha was trying to do with that whole anthology. And it's an homage to Butler who saw the world around her and was like, if we don't change, we're really, we're, we're not, I mean, I hope I can say this, but we're kind of screwed, right? But Butler, I mean, that, you know, to go, to bring it back to Butler, that was why she wrote. She wrote to make sense of the world and the world was increasingly hostile. And so she, she you know, that's why she turned to science fiction was to, to make sense of it. And I think that continues. I mean, that's her legacy in some sense, right? That's mm -hmm. why they named that anthology after her because they saw that that's what she was doing. So and I think it's- why they named the landing site after her. The, the landing Mars site. That's right. I'm so glad you reminded me of that in the email. It's like sometimes life has a way of being so perfect, right? I think her most well-known novel is Parable of the Sower, which is set in LA and like it's actually set in LA, but then they they migrate to Oregon or Washington, one of the two. They go north. But it's a total bleak dystopia. And it's so it's so bleak that sometimes, you know, when I teach it you know, I, I always warn my students, it's, it's, it's bleak, but what makes it really bleak is because it feels really familiar. And, you know, I mean, there's even a, there's even a, a, like a Republican party and their tagline is like, make America great again. And she wrote this in 1992. Right, right. <laughs> but her, her imaginary utopia is a place called Earthseed. And the, the byline of Earthseed is our destiny is in the stars. So it makes perfect sense that the, the, the line I think she said is the destiny of earth seed is to take root beyond the stars. And so it's like, it makes perfect sense that they would name the landing site after her because she's, 
I mean, that was her thing was like, and in a lot of her books, the protagonist who's black and female has some kind of aspiration to go to the stars. There's, mm -hmm. it's like, even in Clay's arc, which is the last book of the pattern of series, she is, I mean, the character has like this recurring vision of wanting to go to the stars because it's an alternative space, right? I mean, I, I could get cynical though and say that there's also in her books this slight sense of like, but will we mess up once we get there? Mm -hmm. Because we have that tendency, but we won't go there. We're gonna keep it hopeful. <laughs>